Psalm 110, we read the entire psalm. A psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness. From the womb of the morning you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. And the text for the sermon this this evening is taken from this psalm and verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his holy word. I just wanted to say on behalf of the congregation here in Abbotsford, what a joy and delight it is that we can have several of our brothers and sisters from the Langley Church join us uh, this evening. It's the second combined service that we've had uh, with you, and it's a great joy to have you in our midst And we hope and pray that uh, in the near future we can do this uh, yet again under the Lord's blessing. We sing in response to the sermon this afternoon, this evening rather, Psalter 302, all of the stanzas. Beloved congregation, one of the most wonderful spectacles on earth is the enthronement or coronation of a king or queen. Some of you here may be old enough to remember the enthronement of Queen Elizabeth II, which took place in Westminster Abbey in London on June the 2nd, 1953. You can still watch it on YouTube. And it was a spectacular event. And it was very famous as well, very historic, because it was the very first televised enthronement in history. And it was watched by millions of people throughout the entire world. Well, this evening, we are going to witness an even more spectacular enthronement. But unlike the enthronement of earthly kings and queens, this enthronement did not take place in a cathedral or an abbey But it took place in heaven, in the very throne room of God. And it was not officiated by religious leaders like cardinals and bishops and archbishops. But it was officiated by God himself. And I'm referring, of course, to the enthronement, the coronation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which we commemorate Today, David refers to this glorious event in the words of our text in Psalm 110, and especially in verse 1. 
And there David writes these words, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This is one of the most frequently quoted verses in the New Testament. It is quoted directly or alluded to at least 27 times. That's more than any other Old Testament passage, and for good reason. Because this verse, more than any other verse in the Old Testament, speaks clearly of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in particular, as we will see, of his enthronement. With that in mind and God's help, we're going to consider this verse under the theme, The Enthronement of David's Lord. And we'll consider, first of all, the honor bestowed on him, and secondly, the victory given to him. David is in the very throne room of God in the Spirit. And as he stood there, he heard a voice. And the voice said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, this verse, this statement, raises a number of very important questions. And the first question that we need to ask of this verse is, who exactly is speaking? Who says, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Well, obviously, the one who's speaking these words is God the Father. And that is because he alone has a throne in heaven. And he alone has the authority to decide on who may sit at his right hand. So these words are spoken by God the Father. But who is he speaking to? Who is the one who was called by the Father to sit at his right hand? Well, there are commentators who say that these words are addressed to David, or possibly to Solomon. But that cannot be. In the first place, whenever this psalm is quoted in the New Testament, it is always attributed to David. And as we'll see in a few moments, even the Lord Jesus Christ attributed this psalm to David. Secondly, what is said in this psalm cannot in any way be attributed to David, or for that matter, any earthly king in the line of David. Because for one thing, the king in this psalm is invited by God to sit at his right hand. Now no sinner, and David was a sinner, and so were all of his descendants after him, no sinner could ever sit at the right hand of God. Because God is absolutely holy, and you and I are totally depraved. What is more, God is in heaven, and David and his descendants are on earth. So how then could they possibly sit at his right hand? For another thing, you may have noticed as we read this psalm, that the king in this psalm is also a priest. That's what it says in verse 4. He is a priest forever 
after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, you remember, was the king of Salem. And he's mentioned in Genesis 14, I believe, Abraham had defeated Keterleomer and his allies and had taken all of the spoils, and he gave a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Now, it's true, of course, that David did perform some priestly functions, but he certainly was not a priest, and certainly not in the order of Melchizedek. But Christ was, as the writer to the Hebrews later points out. And so all of this leads us to only one possible conclusion, that David here is not speaking about himself. He is speaking about the Messiah. He is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have here God the Father saying to his Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now that's confirmed by the fact that whenever this verse is quoted in the Scriptures, it is said to be a prophecy of Christ. Jesus himself said so. You may remember how in Matthew 22, Jesus has this discussion with the Pharisees, and he asked them on that occasion, who do you think that the Christ is? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees answered correctly, he is the son of David. And then Jesus said, how then, and he quotes this psalm, how then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, and then we have the quotation, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And then Jesus asked them this question. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And the answer was clear. David, in this verse, calls him Lord because he is David's superior. And that's precisely the point that the Lord Jesus was driving at. He wanted the Pharisees to understand that although the Messiah would be fully human, he would also be fully divine. He would be more than just a mere man. He would be God himself. And David, in the spirit, with prophetic insight, recognized this. And so as he's writing the words of the psalm, he calls him Lord, my Lord. He's worthy to be called Lord. So the Father is speaking to his Son. Now the third question that this verse raises is, when did the Father speak these words? Now here again, there's a difference of opinion. There are some commentators who say that God the Father spoke these words at the Council of Peace. This was a council among the three persons of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, from all eternity, long before God created the heavens and the earth, God covenanted within himself to save a certain number of the whole human race who would fall into sin and to ordain them to everlasting life in Christ. Upon the condition 
that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, would lay down his life for their sins. And so the theory is that in speaking these words, the Father, as a kind of encouragement, was assuring his Son that he would grant him to sit upon his right hand upon completing all the work that he would give him to do. Now that's very possible. Certainly nothing wrong, nothing uh, an error about that interpretation, but it seems more likely that the Father spoke these words upon his Son ascending up into heaven. Indeed, upon his Son entering into the very throne room of God himself. Now we read about that in Acts chapter 1. And there we read that 40 days after he rose from the dead, the Lord Jesus took his disciples and he went up to the Mount of Olives just outside the city of Jerusalem. And there in the presence of his disciples, the Lord Jesus slowly but surely rose up into heaven and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever wondered what happened when Jesus reached the gates of heaven? Well, we can imagine all kinds of things, but we need to stay according, we need to stick to the Scriptures. And the Scriptures actually give us some insight into this in Psalm 24. And there we read that as Jesus ascended into heaven, that a cry went up. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. It's almost as though Jesus was standing there at the gates of heaven, and the angels were attending him. And they're knocking on the gates, and they're saying, open these gates. Because the King of glory is about to come in. And on the other side of the gates of heaven, there's another group of angels, and with excitement and joy, they cry, Who is this King of glory? Of course, they know who He is. But they love to hear His name. And the voice sounded again, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And again the answer came back, Who is this King of glory? And then it was said, The Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. And at that moment I imagine that the gates of heaven swung wide open. And the Lord Jesus Christ clothed in honor and majesty and power and glory entered into the very throne room of God, accompanied by millions upon millions of angels and the saints who went on before us. And together they erupt in an exuberant noise, an exuberant shout of victory and praise to God. The Lord Jesus slowly and majestically approached his Father's throne, ready to embrace him and ready to be embraced by him. But before he could take another step, the Father, bursting as it were with love and joy, said to his Son, Sit at my right hand 
until I make your enemies your footstool. And somehow, in a way that we cannot possibly comprehend, David in the Spirit, as Jesus said, heard those very words. And he recorded them in our text. Commenting on this, Charles Spurgeon says this, he says, How condescending on Jehovah's part to permit a mortal ear to hear and a human pen to record his secret converse with his co-equal son. How greatly should we prize the revelation of his private and solemn discourse with the Son, herein made public for the refreshing of his people. Lord, what is man that thou shouldst thus impart thy secrets unto him? See what Spurgeon is saying. He's saying here in this verse, we're allowed to listen in on a conversation within the Trinity between the Father and His glorious and exalted Son. Now our text raises one more question, and that is this. Why did God say this? Why did God invite His Son to sit at His right hand? Well, there are certainly at least two reasons for this. First of all, because as we've already seen, the Lord Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He's not merely a man. He is fully man and fully God. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. And the right hand of God was the position of the highest honor. No one in heaven could sit at God's right hand other than His own Son because He and He alone is God. But there's another reason why He said this. Because Christ completed all the work that His Father had given Him to do. His Father had commanded His Son to assume our flesh and blood, to go to this world, a world of darkness, a world full of enmity towards him, and, and that he would suffer and die on the cross. And he would pour out his soul unto death and then be raised again on the third day and ascend back into heaven. And the Son did all of this and all of his teaching were all the words that the Father had given him to speak. And all the miracles were performed by the power of the Father. He did the Father's will. And He did it without flaw. He did everything absolutely perfectly. And as such, He deserved this position of honor. He deserved to be seated at the Father's right hand. You see, His being seated at the right hand of the Father was a reward reward for his work of redemption. There's something else about this word sitting here. The word sitting in the scriptures signifies completion. It does to us too to some extent. When we finish a job, let's say we finish cutting the grass, and we don't have a riding mower, we've got a push mower. Well, if we're finished cutting the grass and it's a hot day, what do we do? We sit down. And we have a drink. We don't do that 
before the job is done. You wait till the job is finished, and then you sit down. So sitting implies completion, and that's true also for the Lord Jesus Christ. He sat down because there was nothing more for him to do. When he died, one of his last words were, It is finished. Everything necessary for our salvation was fully accomplished. And so as Christ entered into the throne room of God, there was nothing left for him to do but to sit. It's a sign that he had done everything, that he had done it very, very well. It was a reward. But this was not the only reward that the Lord would receive from his Father. He would also receive the reward of victory. That's our second point. And notice what God the Father says to his Son. He says, sit at my right hand, and then he adds this, until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, we learn from this that the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, has enemies. You say, who are these enemies? Enemies. Well, certainly his arch enemy is the devil. The devil has been an enemy of Christ from the very beginning of creation. In fact, from before, from, from the day that, that he and the other angels rebelled against God, Christ, the devil has been an enemy, the arch enemy of Jesus Christ. And that's because he's full of enmity towards God. The devil, you see, wants the same power and authority and glory and honor as God himself. And he knows that he can't have it because he's not God. He can't stand it that Christ has that. He can't stand it that Christ is the one who is seated at the right hand of his Father and not him. And so for that reason, he's constantly attacking him. He attacked him during his earthly ministry, and he continues to attack him by attacking his people still today. So the devil is certainly one of the great enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ, but Christ has other enemies as well. You can think of the fallen angels, the demons that are allied with the devil and that do his bidding. They're also the enemies of Christ. We can think of, of sinful men whose hearts are hardened against God and against the gospel, who despise him and who repudiate his claims, who make a mockery of his authority. They too are the enemies of God. And these enemies are very powerful. So powerful that they pose a threat, a real threat to the reign of Christ. But God here assures his son that one day all of those powerful enemies will be defeated. We know that because God invites his son to sit at his right hand until he makes his enemies his footstool. Now what does that mean? Well, the footstool in the Bible is a metaphor for submission. If I sit in my living room on a comfortable chair 
and I put a footstool under my feet, I'm exercising dominion over that footstool. That footstool can't do anything as long as my feet are on it. And we have a powerful illustration of that from the life of Joshua. You may remember that after Joshua defeated the Amorite kings, that he made them all lie down on the ground, and then he ordered his soldiers to put their feet on the necks of those kings. It was a sign of victory. And it was meant to encourage his soldiers that God would give them even greater victory over all of their enemies. Well, that's the idea here as well. God is promising his son that he will make his enemies his footstool, that he will give them victory. He will give him dominion over his enemies. He will cause his enemies to submit, to bend the knee to Christ. And you'll notice that this is not something that the Son will do himself. No, this is something that the Father will do. He will cause those enemies to become the footstool of his Son. And when will that take place? Well, certainly not immediately. You'll notice the word until here in our text. That word until implies that while this is absolutely certain this is going to happen, it's not yet an accomplished fact. And the writer to the Hebrews says that too, doesn't he? In Hebrews 2 verse 8, he's quoting there Psalm 8 verse 6. And in Psalm 8 verse 6, the writer says, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. And then the writer to the Hebrews comments along these lines, he said, for in that he put all in subjection under him, He left nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. And that sounds kind of confusing, but what the writer is saying is that just as God has put all things under the feet of man as his image bearer, so he will put all things under the feet of his Son, Jesus Christ. But not yet. Not just yet. That will take time. There was a battle that must take place first. There's a victory that is, a final victory that is yet to be accomplished. Oh yes, the enemies of Christ, they have been subdued. But they have not yet been utterly defeated. They're in chains, but they're not yet his footstool. But they will be. That's the point. The victory is assured. And when will the enemies of Christ finally be made his footstool? Well, when the Lord Lord comes again. And the trumpet will sound, and the archangel will descend with a shout, and Christ will come, as the book of Revelation describes him, as a rider upon a white horse, going forth, conquering, and to conquer. And he will be victorious. No one will stand before him. And all of his enemies will be put to flight. And he will reign forever and ever. Yes, God will make Christ's enemies his footstool. And that means, congregation, that means he will make our enemies his footstool as well. This is the great comfort of this part of our text. 
You see, even as the Lord Jesus Christ has enemies, so do his people. And who are our enemies? Well, there are three of them. There's the devil, there's the world, and there's our own sinful flesh. Christ has conquered all of these enemies, and one day they shall be put down at last, including death. Death, the Apostle Paul says, is the last enemy of God's people. And these enemies, they're also very, very powerful. And they cause us sometimes great pain. But again, one day, one day, beloved, they will all be defeated and destroyed. And we who believe on his name will live and reign with our victorious king to an everlasting eternity. Oh, is that not wonderful news? This is what makes Ascension Day the greatest of all of the feast days. We sometimes elevate Christmas. And we make quite a big to-do about Christmas. And so we should, because it is a wonderful feast day in its own right. Imagine God becoming flesh. What a wonder that is. It's the beginning of God's work of redemption. But this is the climax. All the other feast days point to this feast day. It's a shame, really, that the churches today, most churches today, do not commemorate this day. And even those among us in Reformed churches, we would never miss a Christmas Day service, would we? Or Good Friday service. But how many actually attend Ascension Day service? I mean, just look around you. I mean, we're here with a combined church of Abbotsford and Langley. There should be a lot more people here than there, are, than there is. I realize there's you know, work and there's other commitments and many other things, but, but this is the climax. This is the coronation day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as such, it is worthy to be commemorated and to be enjoyed by all of God's people, for this is Christ's Victory Day. Well, I mentioned in my introduction that the enthronement of a king or a queen is a spectacular event. But beloved, I trust you'll agree with me that this enthronement is far more spectacular in every way, by every measure. And what is more, it is a great comfort. Yes, it's a great comfort that Christ ascended up into heaven. And we read earlier from Lord's Day 18, Question and answer 49. And there the question is asked of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension into heaven? What's the comfort of this? What's the advantage of the fact that Christ ascended into heaven? And our catechism is so helpful here. It lays it out so beautifully. It says, first of all, that he is our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven. Because Christ ascended into heaven, we have an advocate in heaven. What's an advocate? An advocate is somebody who represents you and pleads your case in a court of law. Well, we have such an advocate, and he is the greatest advocate that we can ever ask for. He is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has the ear of his Father. And when this advocate pleads on our behalf, 
the Father will always hear him because all the Son has to do is say, Oh, Father, forgive these people for their sins because I died for them. Father, this is my blood. I shed my blood for them. When the Father sees the blood of the Son, of course he will forgive. Of course he will restore us unto himself. We have an advocate in heaven. Secondly, our catechism says we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he is the head will also take us up to himself, his members. And we're reminded here that one day, perhaps sooner than later, one day we will all have to die. That's the wages of sin. But because Jesus is in heaven, seated at the right hand of his Father, we have every assurance, beloved, that death will not have the final say. One day, we who believe on his name will be raised. And our bodies will become incorruptible and glorified and we shall live and praise God forever and ever and ever. And how do we know that? Because Christ is there. And he is our head. Now children, can you imagine a head without a body? Impossible. Right? Can you imagine if your head was, was up here on the pulpit, let's say, your body was sitting over there in that front pew? You say, that can't be. Heads belong with bodies, and bodies belong with heads, don't they? Sure. Well, it's the same with Christ and his people. Because Christ is in heaven, he's the head. His people are the body. And the body cannot be long without the head. One day they shall be joined to Christ their head. Where the head is, the body must be also. And the fact that Christ is in heaven seated at the right hand of his Father, our catechism says, is a sure pledge. It's a guarantee. It's an ironclad guarantee that one day we will be with him too. But thirdly, the third benefit of Christ's ascension into heaven is he sends us his Spirit as an earnest. That word earnest is an old-fashioned word. It really means guarantee as a guarantee by whose power we seek the things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God and not things on the earth. So here we confess that because Christ is in heaven, he is able to send forth his Holy Spirit to his people. And he did that on the day of Pentecost, which you hope to commemorate, not this Sunday, but next Sunday. And the Spirit of God takes up his, his dwelling place, his abode within our hearts, and he convicts us of sin, and he sanctifies us, sanctifies us to become more and more like Christ. And he gives us a whole new set of affections, such that we begin to seek the things that are above, the things of God, rather than the things that are here on earth. In other words, Christ, through his Spirit, makes us more and more like him. Makes us more and more holy. Is that not also wonderful? Oh, what comfort there is in the ascension of Christ. Are you a partaker of this comfort? 
Make no mistake, beloved, the comfort of the ascension of Christ does not belong to everyone. It belongs only to those who repent of their sins, who believe on his name and who are striving to live for him and for his glory. And does that describe you tonight? Have you repented? Are you repenting? Have you believed? Are you believing? Are you living for him and for his glory? Oh, if you're not, I urge you, you must do so today, for Christ has ascended. And we heard in our text that he will reign until, until when? Until God the Father makes all of his enemies his footstool. And if you're not in Christ tonight, you're an enemy of his. There's no neutrality when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, whether for him or against him. There's no in between. There's no neutrality. And if we're not in him, we will become one of his enemies. Then we are one of his enemies, and we will suffer the fate of his enemies. Which the Bible describes as a lake of fire, a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. But still today, this ascended king holds forth his royal scepter towards us sinners, and he beckons, he invites, he urges, he pleads, come unto me, believe on my name. I will forgive your sins. I will make you a new creature in Christ Jesus. I will give you the gift of everlasting life. Oh, may the Lord grant that all of us may submit to this ascended and exalted King, whether that be for the first time in our lives or in a deeper way. And may this also manifest in how we live and that we may show forth the glory of God, that we may show that we are truly subjects of King Jesus. And may his name receive all honor and glory. Amen.